Well, it dipped below 32 degrees again last night here in the tiny hamlet of Ojai, California. It's a frosty dip that most of us locals associate with the booming on and off hum of the wind machines that keep the citrus orchards from freezing. For Ojai newbies, it sounds like the helicopters from Apocalypse Now are descending. But to the rest of us, it sounds like home. story. Welcome back to the Townies podcast. I am Kim Maxwell and I am a townie. I'm a townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, The raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same. To go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories. Because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 2, We've Got Problems. First story, Wasted, written and performed by Rain Perry. A singer, songwriter, activist, filmmaker, mom, neighbor, strawberry jam-making goddess. I met Rain Perry at a Summit Elementary School PTO meeting. We have been building playgrounds, taking each other's classes, and making art together ever since. She is the composer and performer of the Townies podcast theme song and my best friend. From the time I moved in with my dad at age seven, I watched him clean seeds and stems from his pot. (laughs) This was the same to hippie kids as uh, seeing your dad clean out leaves and twigs from the rain gutter. In the 70s, pot was a fact of life. You might give a kid a little hit, Sort of like you'd give a kid a tiny taste of wine. (laughs) But pot was really for when you were older. (laughs) Until I was 11, my personal experience had consisted of seeing my dad get high and inhaling the secondhand smoke of my stoner friends. I tried it to fit in and I had acted stoned afterwards, but at 11, I was an uncommitted and inept pot smoker. My friend Leah was older, 13, and cultivated a Dorothy Parker-like world weariness. She had already endured her parents' divorce and her mother's unpredictable temper. She'd been brought to Inverness to live a conventional life with her travel agent father and her homemaker stepmother. She was small, 
round-faced and porcelain-skinned, despised cheerleaders and anything related to school. <clears throat> she had an impressive vocabulary and loved gruesome crime novels and the work of Edward Gorey. She had, and still has, a look she gives when someone is being insufferably stupid. <laughs> kind of an exasperated, exhausted sigh with a rolling of the eyes. I have received it more than once. <laughs> but she liked me. I was her stringy-haired comic relief. Her life looked normal, especially compared to mine. She lived with her father and stepmother in a normal house with normal after-school snacks and was compelled to perform normal chores like emptying out the trash compactor. She did not carry smelly canisters of compost to the backyard. <laughs> there was no giant bag of organic carrots on the bottom shelf of her fridge and no roommate named Bear or Superman down the hall. <laughs> with whom to negotiate the bathroom in the morning. There was no sign above her toilet that said, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. <laughs> One afternoon at her house, Leah produced evidence that her leave-it-to-beaver-looking life was not all it seemed. From a care package sent from Berkeley by her birth mother, Leah unwrapped a package containing a glistening, fat tie stick. It's time to get you stoned for real, she announced. Okay, I replied. She rolled a perfect joint, not because she was a chronic pot smoker, but because of her inability to tolerate mediocrity. <laughs> Grabbing the tube of fireplace matches, she led me outside her house and into the woods. Smoke this, she ordered. She lit the joint, and I took a hit, or tried. Leah gave me the look of exasperation, dramatically wiped the saliva on her jeans and <laughs> inhaled as well. Take another hit, she ordered. I did. When she decided I'd had enough, she pinched the end of the joint and wrapped it carefully in a baggie, and we walked back to the house and climbed the ladder to her loft. Whoa. The room started spinning around me. Suddenly, I didn't dare close my eyes for fear of getting dizzy. My chest felt heavy. I had to push it out in order to inhale, and my mouth was unbelievably dry. You are so wasted. <laughs> I leaned back on the bed. The room was warm, and the wooden walls glowed in the light of her. Oh, fuck, she shouted all of a sudden. What? My dad's home. Uh, <laughs> this was not something I'd considered. <laughs> Leah was already up and dragging me down the ladder into the bathroom. Brush your teeth, she ordered. I did. Here, use this. She squirted visine into my eyes and poured a glass of milk down my throat, shoved an orange slice into my mouth. Stay here, she whispered. <laughs> that was fine with me. <laughs> Rain's here, I heard her muffled voice explain. We went swimming at the pool at the hotel, she cleverly added, laying the foundation for their discovery of our reddened eyes. <laughs> act normal, she whispered. You have to act normal. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> she... she helped her father and stepmother put away the groceries. How can she maintain? I can't even think. Leah's stepmother, who apparently had not noticed anything amiss, asked me if I'd like to stay for dinner. Yes. <laughs> Later, Leah's dad drove me home. When I came in the door, I told my dad everything about my afternoon. God, Dad, I am so stoned, I announced. Like any father, he debated how to handle the situation. After a minute or two, he spoke. Rain, <clears throat> if you're going to smoke pot, I prefer you did it with me. <laughs> that was Rain Perry. Next up, Why You Don't Want to Be With Me, written and performed by Katie Newcomer. Katie is a Golden Girls-loving, master's degree-toting musical theater nerd with a wicked sense of humor and a leaning towards all things social justice. Katie is like if Patti LuPone and Bernie Sanders had a love child. Let me just tell you why you don't want to be with me. It'll just be easier this way. I have an intense, irrational fear of getting in trouble. My face is furry, and I'm pretty sure I'm getting a menopausal beard. No, I'm not pretty sure it's happening. My mom died when I was 24, and she wasn't perfect, and I'm all fucked up about it. I'm not a great driver. I have a large nose. I drink too much coffee. I have never been thin, and I'm never going to be. But I'll always want to be. I'm not beautiful, but I am funny. That's not usually enough. I get way too worked up over things I can't control. I'm type A and a stoner. I can't wear dresses or skirts without some seriously structurally sound spanks. When I see pictures of myself, I become more and more convinced that my mother smoked when she was pregnant. I don't know if I want kids, maybe I do, it's just that I'm terrified of becoming my imperfect dead mother. I have no idea how to blow my hair dry successfully. I try not to eat fast food, but that just means I eat it alone at midnight. <laughs> Sometimes I only exercise that, so that I can tell people on social media. I will eat all of the brie, Oreos, and cereal in the house. My mother's mother was an alcoholic, so I have very low self-esteem. I often feel guilt for my emotions, and I won't talk to you about any of it. But... If I hear music I think you'd like, I'll tell you about it. And I probably will make more mixes than you'd care for. If, you think, if I think you look nice, I like your shirt or your new haircut, I'll always tell you. I won't ever ask you to go clothes shopping with me because I barely like it and I will probably come home with something for you. I was born with one dimple and a natural black streak in my hair, so my grandmother says I'm special. I give great back rubs. I will always laugh at your jokes. I can harmonize the fuck out of Jackson Brown. <laughs> and I really, 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 really like you. So, are you in? 
You are listening to Katie Newcomer. Numbers, written and performed by Elise Geronimo. Botany and math and ceramics and songwriting and bugs and beaches and buildings with vaulted ceilings and puppies and seals and anything with big brown eyes. Elise started off in my team class, but is now illuminating the halls of higher learning with her beautiful words. Hi makes me sick. I had too much of it one time and it made me throw up. It was my favorite too, apple. Not so sweet the second time around. (laughs) But the other pie makes me feel even worse. It explains everything from the double helix strands of DNA to the pupils of eyes and the reason spirals and waves occur. Even erosion and silt deposits are explained through this number that goes on to infinity. This environmental problem is explained through the meandering ratio of waves, which surprisingly Albert Einstein first proved, and surprisingly his birthday occurred on March 14, 1879, in number form being 3.14 and not 159. But this irrational number that starts with number 3 and is represented by the 16th letter of the Greek alphabet is his birthday. Named by a guy with a last name spelled like Euler but pronounced like Euler, who came from Switzerland. Who came from Switzerland? The only significant thing that should be recognized about Switzerland is its particle physics laboratory. Its watchmaking industry is irrelevant, and everyone should realize that its tourist attractions as well are nothing compared to its resistance from going to war in the last 510 years, which has benefited its stable economy, helping provide for its wonderful investment in its particle physics laboratory. (laughs) Do you realize that Pi deals with particle physics and that perfectly ties back to Euler being from Switzerland, where they have the largest particle physics laboratory in the world, which happens to be an entire 100 meters below ground? (laughs) Pi is scientifically the answer to everything, but no answers can be found within it, and that's the biggest reason I hate it. I hate that it makes no sense but explains everything. It just fits right into every equation. But why? Why did the Babylonians, why did the Egyptians want to find the answer to something that just brings about more questions? (laughs) And the Fibonacci sequence. I mean, seriously, it's found everywhere too. And surprisingly enough, there's a vegetable. Something healthy for all you vegans. A A vegetable that grows in fractal form. Of course, if you're a purist, you'd call this an approximate fractal. But setting our differences aside, this vegetable that follows the Fibonacci sequence perfectly happens to grow especially well in silt, which has a high level of alkalinity, which you now know deposits in and along riverbeds, streams, lakes, wetlands, and any body of water for that matter. But this vegetable, Romanesco broccoli, if you will, which grows best in alkaline soil and was first documented in Italy, just just where Albert Einstein's parents moved to as they left him alone to continue his education in Germany, which later on contributed to his genius brain. Would you believe that this Romanesco is also ranked cultivar in taxonomy? Outstanding. (laughs) Especially when you find out that it is the Spanish word for cultivate and is a portmanteau for the words cultivate and variety. (laughs) This specific type of nomenclature, including Latin, which is then fixed into taxonomy, kills me. (laughs) This one word, cultivar, can be made sense of in at least three different languages in my mind. All romance, of course. Romance. Roman. Romanesco. 
Romanesco broccoli should go extinct one day. <laughs> no one needs to deal with its perfectly symmetrical fractal body that is too firm to be manipulated by the wind that dusts its body off or wraps it with a cool layer of air on a hot, sunny summer day. <laughs> I love you, Romanesco. I love that you are an edible flower bud of the species Brassica oleracea. I love that you are a combination of everyone's least favorite subject and least favorite steamed vegetable. I love that your delicious greens are called florets. I love that you're clearly smarter than all other plants and you've decided to remain neutral while other plants are poisoning each other, which is allowing you to further develop your gorgeous light green body. <laughs> you're better than the other living organisms that fit under kingdom plantae, like sunflowers, pineapples, and pine cones, which also grow following the Fibonacci sequence, but you're one of a kind, and that's why I love you. I love that you have an article which was posted about you online on Pi Day. I'm sure you did that just to make me happy, but I don't think you realize that makes me furious. <laughs> that was Elise Geronimo. Coming up, Sarah Hardigan, Woodrow Brown, and Noah Crow when the Townies podcast continues. Dartboard, written and performed by Sarah Hardigan, a Patagonia copy editor by day and rock climbing search and rescue team member by night. It says to smile at you. <laughs> I'm trying. It's me trying to smile. Visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, not mine. As I close my eyes, I think of prune juice. <laughs> How the fuck did they get all of that juice out of the dried up old bags that used to be plums? I imagine a large factory dilapidated, a remnant of the golden age of prune juice before people found quieter, more discreet ways of moving their stubborn bowels. <laughs> Now, in 2015, a single woman dressed in all white, possibly with work-induced arthritis, is picking up these shriveled balls and squeezing hard until one sad, dark purple drop comes out. I feel, feel sorry for her children, who never knew a normal life but turned out to be very regular people. I am... I understand why Plums wanted to get some distance and ask Prunes to go by a new name. Prunes, with their infinite wisdom, are really just purveyors of shit. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, they lost their vigor. They've been juiced. 
this is why I don't sleep like a normal person. During the day, thoughts like this go in and out through a revolving door. I shoo them away with a smile and a sunny disposition. But at night, I am a helpless dartboard. The closed door and dark room has always felt to me like a coffin. I imagine my face repositioned into a permanent waxy smile. I decided at four that I would never be ready for that kind of unrelenting happiness. So, as any healthy person would, I developed a coping mechanism. I scream in my sleep. (laughs) A condition referred to as night terrors. As if I don't have enough issues already, now I have to say out loud with a serious face that I have night terrors. You're supposed to grow out of it by age six, presumably so you don't have to self-identify this way, but... (laughs) Fuck it. I embrace it. Sleepovers were fun. At 13, I could get a whole room of girls to wet the bed simultaneously with a single 2 a.m. blood-curdling, THERE'S A STRANGER IN THE ROOM! Not only did I not shirk the terrors at six, but my screams have continued to grow and evolve with me. I can, after an epic ear splitter, argue a solid case convicting myself of, in fact, accidentally swallowing ten tiny people, ending my speech in full waterworks, mourning the loss of their little lives. (laughs) All while still asleep. And the sleepovers? They've only gotten better. The bedwetter, a singular adult male. Imagine, as a 20-something single lady, you want to have a casual pajama party with a new friend. Firelit, chocolate consumed, wine bottle emptied, there's never a great time to tell someone you scream in your sleep. But after, but after they're wined and chocolated is a good enough time to unveil this psychotic episode that is your nightly ritual. I try to say it quietly and tastefully so he'll only half hear what I'm about to say. I whisper, sometimes I talk in my sleep. Cue him telling an endearing story about his Goldilocks sister and her rendition of Fluffy Bunny goes to a parade told in a cute, half-drunken sleep stupor. I imagine him walking her back to bed and giggling. It's still a story they tell under the rosy lights of the Christmas tree. Not a creature was stirring except Pamela. (laughs) I don't think he's picking up what I'm putting down. So I edge further. My sleep talking is a little louder and slightly darker in tone. For instance, I might yell, Get the fuck out! But don't, but don't leave, because I'll make waffles! This is when he starts to get nervous. I think my dream self would prefer me to stay single and is constantly pushing that agenda. She would like nothing more than to see me old, surrounded by my cats that I fondly refer to as my children, each one named after an Austin character. All of them can tend to stay even when I scream at them in my sleep to go because they are cats and they are willed oppositely. I have been offered a myriad of fun and friendly medications, everything from Klonopin to Vicodin. I've just said no upwards of 30 times. 
Yes, I prefer the transdermal creams that smell like vitamins and ass. And really, let's be honest, don't do shit. I'm supposed to call them homeopathic remedies, but I don't. I have dissolved things under my tongue, swallowed clay to suck the spirits out, called in the angels individually by full name, and hung upside down like a bat to let the terrors drip off and out of me. I've done enough positive thinking to rid the world of disease, famine, and bad daytime soap operas. <laughs> Save drawing a ring with Celtic sea salt around my bed because I didn't have enough salt. I've done it all. <laughs> Nothing works. Sometimes, to comfort myself, I think about all of the others who are terrorized by the night. Preparing for battle, we turn on the lights, plug in the sound machines, put on our dream beanies, and straightened our centered dream catchers, and adjust our modest sleepwear, lest we wake up under bright street lamps. Those who dare to bed with us are the unsung heroes. My favorite, the spouse of a veteran who goes to war every night. His wife, who could have left him long ago, fights his sleep phantoms with him. While an enemy is encroaching, she helps him flip up the mattress to use as a barricade, and together they release rounds and rounds of unfriendly fire. Job done, they put the mattress back and lie hand in hand, drifting off into a peaceful slumber. Thank you, Sarah Hardigan. Miss Sarah frequents the stages of Kim Maxwell Studio and the Upright Citizens Brigade in L.A. She is also the super fancy editor-in-chief of our upcoming collaborative blog. Germaphobe, written and performed by Woodrow Brown, the cleanest high school senior you will ever meet. Endlessly sharp-witted and snarky, Effortlessly hilarious and kind, Woodrow is obsessed with fairness, Krispy Kreme donuts, and environmental science. He is my son, and awesome, and, well, my favorite boy in the whole world. Hey, Gare. Thanks for meeting me. You and I, let's have a little talky-talk. So I was in the elevator a few weeks ago, and some lady walked in. Things were all fine and dandy when homegirl demanded that I press the buttons. Even though she was closer to the buttons than I was, by like a full meter. How peculiar, I thought. I then stared at her to make sure she didn't have any disabilities I was unaware of that would render her unable to do such a simple task. She was the image of health. She wasn't even holding anything. I realized then that I had encountered another of my oldest enemies. I did eventually press the buttons numbers 13 and 22 to get to our respective floors, but this small act of malice sent me over the edge. This thing happened, this kind of thing happens to me a lot. These people step all over me like I'm their servant, demanding hand sanitizer and soap like it comes from a cornucopia. <laughs> These people are called germaphobes. Germaphobes are the scum of the earth. <laughs> These are the assholes that use tissues to open up doors, make you take off your shoes in their home, are generally armed with disinfectant wipes, and tell the clerk at the supermarket to keep the change. Not because they are generous, but because they are pricks. <laughs> pricks that don't want to touch change. I understand fear. Everyone's afraid of something. But these people, 
They have a fear of nearly everything that exists in this physical plane we live in. <laughs> everything can kill us, but not everyone is a bitch about it. <laughs> Even water, the most, the most essential substance to our survival can kill us. That shit's called drowning or water intoxication. For God's sake, splinters killed people up until 200 years ago before God gave us Neosporin and tweezers. <sighs> being cleanly is good. Cleanliness is great. I mean, I hate being sneezed on as much as the next guy. But when it gets to the point where you're wearing a surgical mask to the farmer's market because you're being careful, <laughs> or you move shit with your elbows to prevent sickness, are you really human anymore? <laughs> so this brings me to my point. When you came to my house, let's just call it my sanctuary, and you refused to drink water from my mason jar, my mason jar that my sweet mother fills up every morning to keep them cold. That was shitty, Gary. But you know what was the worst? When you denied my friendly Uno invitation. You don't fuck with Uno! What's wrong with you? I have... Half a mind to slit your wrist and leave you in a filthy bathtub. But I won't because I'm nice! Nice! You have the potential to be so much more. So please, get over your germophobia thing and go play some mud sports in the rain like we used to. Maybe drink from a public water fountain or two. Or else when your dying grandmother lies in a hospital bed with her arms outstretched for the final embrace, you end up taking a step back and saying, sickly bitch, don't touch me. No one wants to be that guy. I can help you, Gare. Just like I always do. Come back to the human side. Please. For me. And that was Woodrow Riley Brown. Next up, The Land of Opportunities, written and performed by Noah Crow. Once upon a time, Noah Crow was a five-foot-nothing theater nerd in my Saturday morning teen class. Noah is now a six-foot-two world-traveling artist and adventurer, perpetually off to New York or London or South Africa. He is a solar power consultant, Burning Man regular, and a brother-slash-uncle to my kids. I'm from the land of infinite possibilities. When I'm landing in LAX or SFO, I don't believe in the urban blight. I see the future ghosts of sleek white electric monorails consuming and condensing those 405s of gridlock, red and white, into two sleek snakes sliding through LA and the burbs. I see the stucco houses crumble down and the earth rises up into dome homes. Whole streets slim into tree-lined bike paths and community orchards where children are safe to play. <laughs> Walmart shelves are empty. All the pointless stuff evaporates back into the mines and factories it came from, and the craftsmen are making us beautiful things that last a lifetime again. The floors are cleared. They're turned into maker spaces and roller rinks. Our gas stations dissipate into bike shops and tea room rest stops where we meet new friends. <laughs> Our backyard fences come down. They're built into raised bed gardens, backyard forts, and chicken coops. The power lines unravel from our skylines. We don't need to watch shit on TV. We'd rather get to know each other. Our golf courses become water reclamation ponds and public parks. Old men in funny shorts still play golf. <laughs> Only now the sand traps are compost piles and the ponds are fish hasheries, and you are wor worried about where your ball goes. 
And damn it, if the grass isn't green all year long, we'd rather the children of the earth have fresh water to drink. We welcome our soldiers home. We help them build bike paths, convert lawns into gardens, retrofit our cities, and, and build fun shit we haven't even imagined yet. They're replanting America. No child ever goes hungry again because there's food growing everywhere. We don't even have to go to the grocery store. Fuck Vaughn's. <laughs> Just walk down the street with your basket, grab it off the tree, it's fresh picked every day. There's so much food, our farms get to give their soil a rest. Nitrogen and, and pesticides stop spilling into our rivers and through the faucets of our homes, making us lethargic and depressed, and the fish come back. We tear down our dams. The salmon are leaping in the air to spawn back home. We feel good about eating sashimi again. <laughs> you ever wanted to go to China? Australia? Thailand? Sweet. Drive right aboard. Our aircraft carriers and battleships are converted into the new U.S. eco-adventure cruise line. We all get to go out and meet new friends in Turkey, France, India. The world breathes a collective sigh of relief. The drug war is over. <laughs> Everything is legal to do but illegal to sell, even pharmaceuticals. If you can grow it or make it or give it away, it's good. Medicare costs plummet. Inner city crime goes up in smoke. Our prisons are empty. They turn into mushroom farms. All those damp cells are perfect for chanterelles and enoki and portobello. Our prisoners go to college. All that money spent imprisoning our nation's youth is spent instead giving them the opportunity to discover their gifts and become pillars of our communities. It's cheaper than jail, and they get to be doctors and baristas and entrepreneurs instead of criminals. We'll get Anthony Robbins and Anthony Hopkins to figure out a solution for the violent ones. Our cops aren't handing us parking tickets and busting kids for a joint. They're getting high-fived by a kid whose bike they just fixed and a hot mom who they just helped get home in time for supper. No one ever gets hurt in drunk driving accidents again because our cops are here to protect us. Now they're smiling and we all relax when they're around instead of tensing up because they're like Dwayne Johnson. The big nice guy on the playground who makes sure no one is being bullied. The sterile walls of our hospitals unfurl into vitality centers. Doctors get paid when we're healthy, not sick. Whoever thought that paying them for being sick was a good idea? We don't have to wait till we're 50 to realize that our whole lives spent in the subtle stupor of a wheat or a dairy allergy isn't really just the way we feel. It's actually our body struggling to survive from eating poisonous, overmodified shit. Healthcare becomes vitality care. Each of us has a team of people making sure we feel better than we've ever felt before. National productivity skyrockets. We stop eating beef because uh, the rainforest destroying mass-produced meat like our GNP depends on it, and suddenly we're no longer spending $800 billion suffering from heart disease and diabetes. Instead, we're using all that extra money and energy learning to skydive, speak Chinese, <laughs> dance the tango. Our rainforests are growing back because we're eating our own food again and being Americans, you know, people who pride ourselves on doing stuff and being good at it. Every job finds its dignity again. Our garbage collectors, our materials regenerators, rebuilding the soil in our cities. Our, manu our auto manufacturers, our whisper clean mass transit makers. Our oil drillers, our geologists finding clean energy we don't have to go to war for. Our judges and lawyers, they get to be the actors and authors and researchers they always wanted to be. 
We go to work because we love it. At the very least, we feel dignified doing it. At first, everyone complains. They say, what about us? What about our jobs? You know, the ones we bitch and fucking moan about and hate. <laughs> the ones that you, the minute that you threaten to take it away, we're, we're up in arms and ready to burn any new innovation or way of life to the ground to stay stuck in them. These jobs are destroying our land and our children's future be damned. We've got to make a paycheck. We're standing under fluorescent lights all day in temperature-controlled boxes, looking at blank faces, feeling our dreams and hopes and passions pass by us, asking, can it possibly be any better than this? We didn't know that once this world of fear and tension and survival crumbles, we won't all be desperately unemployed and starving. But something new happens. The barely acceptable becomes the wonderful. Instead of blood, it's soil. Instead of oil, it's hydrogen. Instead of smog in our lungs, it's fresh air and a thousand trees shading our cities. Instead of ass sore, vein pumping, AM, gridlock, radio, road rage, Bill O'Reilly for two hours after working under a horrible boss, sucking down road fumes, struggling and fighting to maintain a life or desperate to escape from. <laughs> it's our hands full of dirt, nose full of rosemary and orange blossoms, evening dew and platters of amazing food with our families after work because that's the choice we're making every day. Our fathers wake up in the morning and ride their bikes to work. <laughs> They're home before the sun goes down because, hey, what were we all working so hard for anyway? We sit by the fire with our neighbors, pull our decaying grandparents out of rest homes. The haze clears up from their cloudy eyes and the smiles come back to their faces when they see their grandchildren really need them. They are valued Suddenly, they quickly shuffle from being infantilized, drooling incumbents who need other people to wipe their asses into long-storied, silly, wrinkled old guardians of our children who, yes, may still need to have their asses wiped. <laughs> Whoever convinced us we needed to sequester our experienced elders into nursing homes and then pay inexperienced strangers to do our childcare swallows really hard and goes and does something they really love. Our children are free. No more BS tests and ADD, soda pop, bullying and medications. They're discovering who they really are and learning things they can do something with. Because whoever multiple choice themselves out of a flat tire or a broken heart <laughs> or global warming. Our children get up and out of their classroom packed like sardines learning how to fill in bubbles under the eye of a stop clock. They walk up to the most interesting person in town and say, I'm here to help. Teach me something useful. They're learning from a worldwide community of the best of the best to do what they like the most of the most. We don't have to wait until we're 22 or 32 or 52 to do something meaningful. We're doing it now and learning everything we need to on the way. Every kid who ever wanted to be a marine biologist is. <laughs> All those islands of plastic in the Pacific are harnessed into fuel for eco-boat ocean tours, and the dolphins and whales are doing backflips in front of rainbows. <laughs> Everyone who's ever wanted to be a cellist or a stand-up comedian is. Sure, we might also throw in a few days growing tomatoes or wiping oil out of seagull feathers, but we're playing. Every night is live gig night. Our families are back together again under the stars. Monkeys are swinging through the trees. Birds are tripping. Everything is good in the world. Sure. There's a few people who will no longer be making $10,000 plus an hour CEOing a company that sells us stuff we don't need. And they'll be pretty pissed about it. <laughs> they'll buy all kinds of ad campaigns and news coverage and senators to try to frighten us that organic gardens are a public self and safety hazard. That without over-medicating our children into pliable zombies, they will surely become criminals. <laughs> and without constant war for oil, terrorists will surely destroy our precious democracy. But now we have fresh food and clean water 
and our families are safe and happy and we're not so damn stressed all the time. So we don't react immediately. We don't jump into the fear. Everyone has everything we need. So it's not about who can get the most stuff at the expense of other people's stuff. It's how can the most of us create the coolest stuff to blow the most people's minds? Because in the end, we aren't lazy people who have given the chance would just sit scratching our asses all day eating bananas that must be forced to produce. The nations of the world don't even know what to do with all the money they have now that they're not spending it defending themselves from each other or trying to take shit from each other because everyone has what we need now. No one's being forced or being convinced to buy things we don't need. Now, our countries are competing for where's the coolest place to be and who has the most amazing musicians and architects and scientists. They're begging people to go to school, to learn and master and excel at their passions so they can point and say, See, world, we gave you Bjork and Miyazaki and Christo and that American Idol chick. <laughs> We give you Tesla and free energy and fresh guacamole. <laughs> Everything's going so well, we get bored. Shoot, without all the terrorists and Ebola, swine flu, avian flu, pneumonia, rickets, fucking plague? We need something exciting. Somebody says, let's build a space elevator. You say space elevator? 10,000 geeks and visionaries and builders say, fuck yeah. Everyone gets to see the Earth from space and fly! It's not hard. It's self-organizing. Then China goes, shit? The U.S. is making a space elevator? Dang! We gotta do something cool, too! Who wants to regrow the Arctic ice sheet? Save the polar bears from extinction! Regreen Venus! There is an arms race. It's who can come up with the coolest idea and get the right people to raise their hands and say yes! We really are ready to be a part of something big and fun and epic. And now, and beyond that, yes, we want to adventure and laugh with our friends and strangers from other places and scratch our asses while eating bananas too. We want to grow and love and lose and grieve and heal and feel whole. And do it again and again and again. And finally, we will be called to discover the new and the possible. The self just beyond the self, the unpracticed skill, the undiscovered talent, the inspiring idea, the bold gesture. It's all just waiting for us. It's like a, it's like a garden waiting under the asphalt. It doesn't need a war or an apocalypse or a messiah. It just needs air and water and love and a little time to breathe. I come from the land of possibilities. It's right here, right now, right under my feet, in my next breath, my next smile, my next choice. And it's not some huge, overwhelming solution. It's simple choices, day by day, like, like a smile to a friend, like a kind gesture, like a seed planted. You are listening to Noah Crow. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world. To laugh more, 
risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Episode two. <laughs> We've got problems. <laughs> <laughs>